All right, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Carson, Aaron, Tyler, team, thank you so much for leading us in worship. Hey, if you will, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to be. It's where we started last week in a brand new series called The God Who Pursues, looking at the story of Jonah. Um, and look, I'll tell you my tendency and what I want to do is we, we covered some historical background and six verses last week. Uh, and so what I'd really like to do in this moment is re-preach all of last week right now and then also preach all of this week so we all understand the full story. Uh, I've been counseled and told that this is not the most helpful thing for us. Uh, so uh, here's what I would urge you to do. If you want to know the background, the history, the setting, all of the kind of the arena that this is taking place in, I would really encourage you if you missed last week to go back and listen to the sermon uh, via Spotify or uh, Apple uh, podcast, all that kind of stuff. Uh, go back or even just our church website. You can find it there as well. Go back and listen to that. That's really going to help you set up and walk through the entirety of this series as we look at what's happening because... One of the things that we really try to focus on and look at, and I truly believe that the scriptures draw us to, is a really, really, really big question. And I think for a number of us, we come to the book of Jonah, and unlike a lot of other Old Testament books that we have a lot of questions about, for this one, we don't feel like we have as many questions. Because we've heard this story forever, and we understand the characters We get that Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. We get that he's thrown off of a ship. We get that he's in the belly of a great fish. We understand all of those things. But quite frankly, if that's the only thing, or the only things rather, that we think this story is about, then we're sorely mistaken. Because there's much, much, much more here. And when we read a story like this, because it is prophetic narrative, it is written truly in a narrative sense, in a very story type way. One of the things that we typically do is we identify the characters. We look at the people that are in the story. And and as believers, as Christians, as people who seek to live their lives in a way that glorify God, naturally, when we look into a text like this, we look at the characters, at Jonah, at these sailors, at the Ninevites, at all the people that are a part of this, and we say, what do I want to model? What are the things that I want to do? And quite frankly, as we read the book of Jonah, what are the things that I don't want to do? What are the things that I don't want to model, that I don't want to live out? But ultimately, there's a bigger question. We can look and see through and in the lives of the characters and those that are in this story. We can see something more. We get to answer a bigger question. And the question is this. What is God like? What is God like? And in just the first six verses last week, we're able to see that God reveals himself to us as he is one who pursues us. He is pursuing Jonah. He's pursuing him to go tell the Ninevites to repent. He's pursuing the Ninevites, these people who are unequivocally, unabashedly, totally, in every way, evil. You go back and listen to last week, you you can kind of understand some of the background and the history of the the fact that Nineveh is the city that's a part of a Syria that's really built on the blood of the innocent. God is still even pursuing them. God is the one who pursues. That's the character. That's the picture. That's the understanding we're going to continually see as we read through Jonah and get a picture of this. Not just who these people are and what they've done, but more than that, what is God like? 
and it's going to help us understand the character of God more and the gospel of Jesus Christ as we continually grow in becoming gospel people. We're going to start today in reading verses 7 through 17 and see yet another picture of what God is like. This week, specifically in these verses, we have the opportunity to see this big thought, this thing that emerges from the text, that God is in control. That God is sovereign and that he is in control. Let's read beginning in verse 7 through 17. It says this. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. All right. So the setting here is that Jonah is on this boat. He's gone to, to sail away from what he's called to do. He's called to go and preach to Nineveh to call them to repentance of their sin and yet Jonah goes the other direction, and he finds himself in this moment now, in the midst of a swirling sea, this tempestuous, this wild storm that is happening. And if you look back into verse 6, and this is really, really crucial, you'll see that it is God who hurls the storm. It is God who brings this storm. And to us, initially, that sounds, we talked about this last week a little bit, quite challenging, because quite often in our world, we perceive that God is love. So maybe these things don't really jive. Maybe in certain ways, we see this coming of a storm as such that God is a punisher. God is one who is angry. And the reality of what's happening in this moment, as wild and as tempestuous as this storm is, as wind blowing everywhere, we get the picture in verse 6 that that God caused the wind, and we know that that word, the ancient meaning of this word wind, this ruach, it means 
not just wind, but it means breath. And it means spirit. In the midst of this storm that God has caused, it's not God leaving people to disaster. It's God approaching. It's God coming near. It's the very breath of God pursuing Jonah in all of his disobedience, pursuing these sailors, as we're going to see today, that are with him, and pursuing these Ninevites that have only loved themselves, that have sought to build a kingdom for themselves. God, in his grace and in his mercy graciously provides this storm that's under his control. Look at verse 7, and we get another picture of the control that God has as we walk through the passage. They say to one another in the midst of the storm, come, let us cast lots. Now, I think for a lot of us, we understand this to be historically uh, a form of dice, a form of, of throwing something out, a form of determination. This is essentially a process of elimination to make decisions. And when you and I see this, contextually, I think we maybe bristle at this and say, this, is kind of, this kind of feels dirty, it kind of feels wrong, it kind of feels like gambling. It kind of feels like maybe we shouldn't actually be doing this. It should be something else. But you need to understand that in the Old Testament, this was very common. In fact, this is God's providence, and he ordains these things to happen and uses things like this to give direction. In the books of Joshua and 1 Samuel, look into Psalm 16, and even before the Spirit comes in in Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 1, we find the disciples casting lots in order to determine who's going to replace Judas. Now, the casting of lots is not such that we just do whatever these inanimate objects say, but instead there is typically a prayer for guidance, a prayer for God to direct. So something wild is happening in this moment. Jonah is aboard this ship that he's gotten onto with these people in Joppa who, quite frankly, are not Hebrews. They're not Israelites. They're not people who follow the Lord, and yet they've adopted, they've taken in this practice, and they've said, we got to do this thing to figure this out. This is drawing straws. This is finding the shortest stick. This is getting to a place where we understand what's happening here, and yet the fingerprints of God are all over this. And he is the one that is in control because the lot does come. It falls to Jonah. And here's what we need to understand. This is not some random occurrence. This is not mere coincidence. This is actually providence. God is using this human temporal means of determination to prove himself. That he is the one that is in control. Look into verse 8. After the lot falls on Jonah, they say to him, they ask him this series of questions. And they are rapid-fire questions because I think one of the most challenging things when we read this is we read this list of five questions. We, we try to understand all the things that are being asked here. And we forget that in the middle of this, they're soaking wet. They're in a raging storm. I did this thing yesterday where, and this is like, it's, it's honestly embarrassing uh, because we have this cool thing on our phone that tells us, like, to the moment when it's going to rain, right? And yesterday was Saturday, and I was like, I'm going to grill some food. It would be really good to grill some food between the hours of, like, 5.30 and 7.30, right? And I don't know if, if you're like me, and if you lived in a five-mile radius of here yesterday, uh, it was tempestuous, to say the least. Like, like we say raining sideways. It was, like, actually raining sideways. Uh, and so I, I wore a raincoat 
uh, on the grill, and then I like had to go finish it in the oven, and it was a whole mess, right? But I, I, I'm just sitting there trying to trying to not burn burn a piece of meat in the midst of this rain that's everywhere. I cannot imagine this storm. And these sailors trying to get to the bottom of this, all of this power, this wind, this rain, the ocean that is rocking this ship back and forth. They're trying to make a decision in the midst of chaos. And so they ask these questions, not in a, in a you know, somebody kind of has a steno pad and is taking notes here and saying, you know, uh, well, you know, what's your occupation? Tell us about it. They're screaming at Jonah likely. Who are you? Where are you from? What have you done? Why are we here? What is happening? And then Jonah says to them these very specific words. He says, I'm a Hebrew. And so what he's doing in this moment is saying more than just, I come from this area of Israel. Or I come from a place near Palestine. Or I come from a geographic place. Instead, he is marking himself out as an Israelite. In such a deep way... That these sailors that he is with would understand who he is of. And then he uses this phrase and he says, and I fear the Lord. Now this is really, really unique. Because this word for fear can obviously mean worship. It can mean revere. And it can also mean to believe in. With a couple of different connotations. Of assenting to, of recognizing, which is more akin to this story, much more than putting one's trust in. So in this moment, when Jonah says that he fears the Lord and he's talking about himself, in many ways he's saying he believes the Lord in premise, but he doesn't in practice in this moment in his life. He's failing to trust in the Lord. He is literally gone the opposite way that the Lord has asked him to go. And so what's happening here is I think we're building to the place where we're going to see Jonah confess the things that he knows that he's done. Because even as he says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, he's recognizing in and of himself how little he has feared God, how little he's revered, how little he's worshipped, how he's believed in his mind, but not with his heart in this moment. Then he expands upon who God is. Because these sailors, these likely Canaanite sailors, these people who have kind of adopted a number of different religions and taken on all these different kind of practices, all kinds of superstitious type things, they've taken a little bit of every God. They want to know what God it is that is behind all of this. Who is this God? And it will be common for them to wonder, what kind of God is it? Is it, is it, is it a sea God? Is it, is it, a, is it, a, is it a God of, of any other type of thing? Because there were gods for all sorts of things in this world. But Jonah draws out very particularly in a couple of ways who this God is. He says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. So to say that he's the God of heaven, Jonah is revealing to these men that God is supreme, that he is truly in control, that he is sovereign over everything, that there's not anything outside of his control at all. All of these things are made by him, and he expounds on it even more here when he says, who made the sea and the dry land. 
Now Jonah's subtle confession is really starting to come to light because he's saying these words in the midst of this storm. He's saying that God is the one in whom he believes, who's in control of even the thing that is around them swirling endlessly in chaos in this moment. He knows what's happening. Jonah knows because he's seen God control this storm. He's seen God control the lots that have been cast. And he's seeing God continually control the storm that is around him. And in these moments, Jonah is starting to be resigned to see that not only is he the one behind this, in the sense that he's responsible but now he's seeing, he knows that something has to be done. Something has to be done in this moment. Look into verse 10, and this is what we see. They say, what is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So Jonah has at this point confessed to them. They know a mistake has been made. Now I want you to think about this. These are people who worship all kinds of different Canaanite gods of 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 crops and, and produce and, and the sun and the sea and all of these different types of things. But in so many ways, I think we view people, and especially in the Old Testament, well, they're not religious like us, so they're not religious at all. But just because the story of these sailors is one where we understand historically that they might not be holy, it doesn't mean that they're not religious. Because they ask this question, what is this that you have done with this deep, innate recognition and knowledge that God is, is not one to trifle with? That God cares about our actions, that God is in control. And then in verse 11, we see them attempt to take control. They say to him, what shall we do to you for that the sea may quiet down for us? They ask Jonah what to do so that this can come to an end. And then Jonah brings to them his confession. Look at verse 12. He said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah knows ultimately that the storm has come upon these men as a result of the fact of his disobedience. The fact that God has called him to come, to arise, to go to Nineveh and to call out against it, to bring it to repentance, to preach repentance to these people. And yet in his disobedience, he goes the other way. So much so that he goes to the innermost point of everything that is away from all he's known. Because when he aboards this ship, he goes down into the dwelling place, into the bottom, into the cavern of this ship. And begins to sleep so much so that he doesn't even understand the gravity and the weight of the storm that is coming. He's in this sleep of sorrow, this place where he longs to be away from the Lord away from this burden, perhaps just trying to escape the fact of what he's done, his own disobedience. Jonah knows his actions, and he knows that the Lord has brought this, and yet he has not yet seen that it is for his good. 
And these sailors have not yet seen that it is for their good. And because they don't see this, I want you to look at verse 13 and see something that is is really, really helpful to illuminate to us what we do when we're confronted with our own brokenness, with our own sin, with the reality of the ramifications of our actions. Look at verse 13. They've just described a moment. We've just seen where Jonah says, look, this is the answer. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. That, that's how the sea is going to be quiet. Nevertheless, in verse 13, it said, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. What's happening in this moment is everyone is coming to a place of realization of why they're here. Of what's happening in this moment. God has caused this storm to come upon this group of people as a result of Jonah's disobedience. But it's because of his great mercy that he's doing so, though they can't see it yet. They recognize what's happening. They know what's going on. They see the answer before them. And you know what they do? Let's just row harder. We should start rowing harder. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in this moment. Quite often, I think this is a picture of our lives. We get confronted with the reality of our sin, with our brokenness. We, we come to an understanding of why we're in a situation that we're in. And yet, instead of trusting in the Lord and moving forward and, and perhaps doing the hard thing, the challenging thing, the hard conversation, the hard decision, we say there's got to be another way. What about this way that I've been trying the whole time? Maybe I'll just keep rowing. We see the humanity In this story, in this narrative, this picture, this history, we understand the kinds of people that God pursues. They're runners. They're leavers. They're the faithless. And yet God, in his power, in his sovereignty, in his control, is relentless. And he's continuing to pursue them and control this situation. So they say there must be another way. And then they call out to the Lord in verse 14. And they say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. That's the first part of this. And let's really look at that. What are the, what are the sailors saying here? They're coming to terms with the reality that they, that they will have to throw Jonah overboard. And this is not... For us, the scene where we think, well, they'll throw him overboard, but there'll be another ship, or he'll find something to float on. you got to understand, and it's hard for me to understand this, but Discovery Channel didn't exist. There's no Jacques Cousteau. And I mean this in a very serious way. The sea is a place full of great mystery. And it marked out death for these people. There's nobody with scuba gear going down and figuring out what's there. 
So that people can be comforted by, well, we have some sense of certainty of what's beneath us. This is completely uncertain. It's completely fearful. It is a death sentence to go overboard. There's not a life raft coming, at least in these sailors' minds. There's no means of escape that is afforded Jonah. They also know culturally that they don't want his blood on their hands. Look at what they say. Lay not on us innocent blood. Because here's the reality of this moment in the culture in which they live. Jonah's not given any sort of due process here. There's no outside voices speaking into these events. And it would be very likely historically that in a moment like this, when, when one is thrown over, there would be people that perhaps knew where Jonah went or knew what he did or the ship that he boarded. And they fear that his blood would be on their hands if people came to know, if people came to understand the actions of what is happening. So that's the first component. But look at the second thing. For you, O Lord, and they're asking this of the Lord, that the blood wouldn't be on their hands. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. These men, these sailors, these Canaanite people, at this moment, are confessing with their mouth that God is in control. That he is the one who does what pleases him. This is an amazing thing. This is someone without the pedigree, without the background, without the experience, without the relationships, without the knowledge of Yahweh, without the knowledge of God the Father. And yet, in the midst of this, they see his power. They see who he is. It's really strange because it's the least likely in this story who actually revere God the most. It's the ones who do not have the spiritual background, the spiritual understanding, instruction, education, temple life, rituals, any of these things that would make people have more opportunities, more experience to understand the goodness of God. It's the people who, quite frankly, before this boat ride, had no idea either who Yahweh was, or even if they did, he was just one of other gods. And now they're the ones who are recognizing God's character for who he is. That God is in pursuit of, Of this one for some reason. And that this God is one of great power. And one who is in control. That's what's happening in this moment. Now. Look down into verse 15 and 16. And we see in so many ways. The culmination of this point of the story. So they picked up Jonah. And they hurl him into the sea. And and the way this is written. Gives this the reader and the hearer. It's written in such a way that. There's immediacy. This is not something that happens after a little while, but instead it's this. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and with immediacy, the sea ceased from its raging. As if someone commanded it to stop. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now here's what this means. They fear the Lord. They recognize 
the Lord. And it says that they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It is really important to note a couple of things that are of deep historic significance to help us understand what this last verse specifically means. One, it would be very uncommon that they would have any sort of animal that they could use to make a sacrifice aboard this ship. So the way it's written, it makes it feel like they just did this in that moment instantly. And quite frankly, it's not exactly like that. This would have happened later. In addition to that, they've already hurled off all of this weight, all of this stuff from the ship itself in order to try to lighten the load to regain some stability during the storm. So what does this sacrifice mean? What does this making vows mean? Well, here's ultimately what it means. It means likely when they arrived at shore safely, their recognition was so great that they went and made a sacrifice to Yahweh, that they made vows to God. What we don't understand or have deep clarity on is, are these people now people who are, are a part of the faith? We can't know that for certain. But what we can know is this, that these people who had either no knowledge or no concern For the God of heaven and earth, the God of sea and land, the God who created all things, the God through whom everything's under his control, they now see that. They now sense that. They now recognize that because of these events, because of God's pursuit and genuine pursuit of Jonah. Remember, God causes the storm, but he does it by the very power of wind, his breath. It is as if God is trying to draw near to Jonah, even in the midst of his disobedience. And God is graciously drawing near to these sailors. Even as they run from the Lord in different ways. God is in pursuit of all of these. This is what God is like. And what this passage illustrates is this picture that God is sovereign. He's in control. He's one to be worshipped. He's one to be obeyed. And you might find yourself reading through this and saying, okay, well, where's the gospel in this? What's the picture of this that helps me understand not just the application for my life, but where's Jesus in this. Remember, if you, if you were here last week, we talked about so many of the things that are in those first six verses that really help us connect and see how all of the scriptures work together. That this Jonah that we're introduced to in chapter 1, is, this isn't the first time he's mentioned in the Bible. That you go back to Second Kings chapter 24 and 25 and you'll see him there. That Nineveh, is, this isn't the first time it's mentioned in the scripture. It goes all the way back to Genesis 10 and the Table of Nations. All of the things that are included in this story are for us to see the whole picture. The picture that the Bible connects. That this is one story. That Jonah is not separate and one of many stories. One of 66, a collection of stories. But it's all one story that flows together And if we read into Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 and 27, we get the redemptive picture of Jonah in so many ways. What does faithfulness look like in the midst of the storm instead of faithlessness? This is Matthew chapter 8, 
verses 23 through 27. Matthew 8, 23 through 27. This is Jesus on the sea with his disciples. It says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Do you see the parallel? And this is Jesus. But he was asleep. Now I want you to think for a moment about the narrative, the picture we're given in Jonah. What does Jonah do when he goes down into the boat in the midst of the storm? Where is Jonah? He's asleep. But where Jonah is in this sleep of sorrow, this recognition, a depression of sorts, that he's run from the Lord, that he's gone away from him, Jesus is asleep, and his sleep is marked vastly differently. His sleep is that because he can rest in, he can trust in, All that the Father is and is doing. Look at verse 25. And they went and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. The disciples are speaking to Jesus in the same way, in the same manner, with the same frantic sense that these sailors are coming to Jonah and saying, What is it that you've done? Why is this happening? Look at verse 26. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? It's the word of the Lord to which we say, Thanks be to God. This is is a beautiful picture of the connection of, the picture of what God is longing to do and how Jonah will fail. And how Jonah, in so many ways, God has called out and has pursued time and time again and given redemptive opportunity. And yet the only means by which we can be saved is trusting in God the Father. And for us, through Jesus Christ and what he's done. This is a story that reveals that God is in control. And when these words are written, as Matthew writes these, he writes them to people that would hear and they would connect and they would recognize the story of Jonah. And they would recognize that not only has God the Father been in control of all of history, now in the fullness of time, God's Son has come to redeem. Jesus redeems is faithful when Jonah's faithless. Quite frankly, when we're faithless. The one who consistently and constantly pursues us. This is who God is. He's the God who pursues and he's the God who's in control. And I look back into verse 14 in Jonah and I think of these things. These sailors, they call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and not and lay not on us innocent blood. The gospel is this. That Jesus would look at sinners and say, Father, have mercy on them. For they know not what they've done. And Jesus is the one who would not say, don't lay innocent blood on me. He would be the one who, with his own volition, would take on the blood 
of those who are unrighteous. It's the gospel. And this story in Jonah is giving us a beautiful depiction of it. This is the last thing I'd love to share with you. Um, One of my favorite writers, one of my favorite authors, uh, a guy named Paul David Tripp, written a lot on uh, God's grace and parenting. Uh, He's also really, really helpful from a devotional standpoint. Um, I'd love to just show you a couple of things that, that he stated and how it ties so well into Jonah. God's grace often comes to us in unexpected and uncomfortable forms. I think that's a beautifully synthetic way of saying God is in pursuit of us. And this is what's happening in Jonah. God is pursuing him, and it's uncomfortable, and quite frankly, it's really unexpected. And yet God is after us. And then think of this. He would say that every divine interruption of your plans is an expression of the perseverance and faithfulness of God's grace. I think that's easy to see in the story of Jonah. Jonah's life is interrupted by this call to go and preach repentance to this people who, quite frankly, have not only undone everything that he's done, that what we saw in 2 Kings last week, in the prophecy to Jeroboam, the expanding of land, these Assyrians have undone this, and more so, they are evil, horrible, terribly murderous people. Jonah's whole life is interrupted by this call. This is the call that no prophet wants to get. And Jonah gets it. These sailors' lives. I mean, it, it feels like Mediterranean Uber. They're just taking somebody somewhere they're going, right? They're taking somebody, and their, their, their whole life, their ship, their belongings, everything that they're a part of, everything that's around them is caught up in this storm. This is... Interruption, but it's divine. This is what God does with us. He interrupts our lives, quite frankly, because you and I have plans. We've got good plans, right? I do. I think that there's some stuff I should do. And moreover, in my flesh, some stuff I just want to do. I want to do these things. And quite often, I find my life interrupted. You know, my first thought is, my first thought is God's mad at me. And that's not the reality. Let's be clear that God is chastening. He's offering discipline to Jonah. But it's not with retribution in mind. It's with restoration in mind. He longs for Jonah to come to him. And in the process, in this interruption that is so divine and so brilliantly orchestrated by the very power of his breath, even others, even these sailors, have come to a recognition of his power and of his control. Could we leave this place today recognizing that our God is so gracious to us that he loves us so much that he will interrupt our very lives and the plans that we've made so that we can experience his goodness and his grace and his mercy. Could we be people 
that see in the scripture this morning that God not only pursues us, but he's in control. And I would say, if we just saw that God was in control, if we just saw that he was powerful, then it might be challenging to recognize, hey, we know we need to trust him, but why? But here's what we're going to see in the book of Jonah. God is not only powerful, but he's merciful. He's merciful. He pursues the disobedient, just like you and me. He brings divine interruptions, these things that wreck all of our best laid plans so that we can know more of him. Because you know what happens if the result is knowing more of God? of experiencing the gospel, of losing our ability to have any sort of pride in who we are and what we've done. You know what the destruction of all of our dreams that we make for ourselves in selfish ways are? They're graces. It's grace. It's mercy. It's his pursuit. It's his love. It's his care. God is in control. Do you know what that is for you and me? That's hope. That's hopefulness. The opportunity to trust in one who is in control of all things. To know that our God may pursue us in ways that feel painful. That are challenging. And yet we can see his faithfulness continually pursuing and coming after us. This is how faithful God is. He's given his son, Jesus. He's given us himself. And this is wild and I can't get over it. It's not when we're at our best. Do we get that? It's while we're sinners that Christ dies for us. It's while we're these people who run. These people who stand in the midst of the storm of God's mercy and his faithfulness. Saying, return to me, come to me. And say, you know what, I'm just, let's just keep rowing. Like that's, that's who we are. And he comes to us and he pursues us and he runs us down. This Psalm 23 that we read Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days. These are not just characteristics. This is actually the very character of God himself. This is who God is. He is pursuer. He comes after us. And because he is in control of all things, you and I can trust him. So here's what I'd love to do this morning. We're going to have the opportunity to sing and to respond about this God who is faithful, faithfully pursuing. And I'd love to just take some time even before we sing to just let the band play instrumentally and let's spend some time in prayer for a moment. And just, can we just recount this morning the wild circumstances that we've experienced in life? These moments that seem chaotic. And can we see God's faithfulness there? 
Can we see his pursuit there? Can we look back to these places and say, I don't have any frame of reference to understand what was happening, but God was in the midst of this. And as a result of meditating on and thinking on these moments, thinking on rather these moments of faithfulness that God has shown us in our life, could we walk out of here today not just trying harder, not wanting to be better, but with a renewed sense of God's love for us so that as a result, we might be like the God we worship. We might be one who pursues others. We might run after others. We might pursue our spouse faithfully. We might pursue our children. We might pursue our friends. We might pursue our neighbors. before we say these words let's contemplate let's think on the very faithfulness of God Father, Heavenly Father, we sit in this room. Father, we are together as a body of believers. God, I look out at these people who love you. God, who've experienced your faithfulness through grief, through pain, through beauty, through joy, in various circumstances. Father, we have seen you be faithful. So this morning, we confess. good in your pursuit of us. Father, we confess that your faithfulness is great beyond even that which we could confess or see. God, could we leave this place, Father? I ask that you would make us a people who live in light of your faithfulness, in light of how good you are to us that others might experience and recognize and see you as the God of all and turn and trust you. Father, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If you will, let's stand and sing.
respond together. And look, I say stand. You may want to sit, and that's okay too. But in this moment, allow the Lord to speak to you. And if you want prayer, or you want the opportunity to, to come kneel at this altar, to come forward, uh, we'd love to receive you. So let's worship together now.